At exactly a quarter past four, the melancholic sextet began lowering Worm's casket into the wet gray clay. I ritualistically rolled a cigarette and marveled at the monochromatic scene. The only splash of color on this otherwise dismal palette was the priest's vestment, which seemed an impossible burgundy. The Zippo flame was even silvery white. Zen Arc Mazir, I thought. I firmly believe the only way to understand the oddity of a family dynamic is to actually be in one, and while others may achieve close seconds, the weirdest family dynamic will almost certainly be your own. Our mother had maintained that our father died of a heart attack shortly before we were born. He was the reason Worm received the middle name Henry. My own middle name was my mother's maiden name, and thus never a subject to open to discussion. Our older brother Eli had become the man of the house. Unlike most Martinets, he quickly learned to use neither of our full names when we were insubordinate. Mine caused an even greater outrage on my part, and Worms caused my mother to become despondent. I would have liked to have met Henry Wood, but this would never be. The first decade of our lives, me and my twin were inseparable, to the point where we even shared our own unique language, indecipherable to all who heard it. The rules of our tongue were simple. No gender agreement, barely any conjugation, synonyms, or flowery words, in fact, it wasn't until this morning when I found Worm's stack of journals that I learned our idioglossia even had a complete written form. In high school, I suspected one may have existed. Journal scribblings, accordion messages slipped into my locker vent, and artistic notes on my script had an increasingly organized transliteration of the common words. And months previous, I'd stared at countless index cards tacked perfectly plung to a corkboard wall an ocean away. In the trunk of my car was actual proof meticulously catalogued and beautifully scribed were years of thoughts, diatribes, dreams, and fantasies destined to stump the most creative of linguists. I wondered if I'd ever bring myself to read them, and if I'd even understand them. I couldn't help but think that Worm had intended for me to try. Our pidgin language was designed for laconic utility where a syllable whispered across a tense dinner table exacted optimum comprehension. I don't consciously remember most of it nowadays, except that the word for to be, or to live, was the same as the word for fire. On occasion, where I've had too much to drink, I'm told I revert to speaking it. And though women have implied this, I can't corroborate if, indeed, it was our secret tongue, or merely alcohol-infused gibberish. I truly hope it's the former. I really like that. In times of joyous inebriation, I prefer to believe there's a little boy inside me that's calling for his playmate. Regardless, it was simple, nameless, and ours. And now, joining the ranks of Latin and Worm himself, it too was dead. I listened to the priest recite psalms over the body of my brother and thought about the days and nights of our youth. I remembered the list of excuses Eli made us memorize if Mom showed up at school bearing the bumps and bruises of her boozy clumsiness from the night before. School nurses and guidance counselors always looked skeptical, but they pressed no further after an excuse was delivered. If Eli was away, we'd alternate monitoring our mother, attempting to prevent injuries and accidents. He'd warned us of the statistics of careless smokers and house fires and put us in charge as the men of the house. When Eli was there, he pacified her enemy, dutifully tamped her cigarettes, and tucked us all into our beds. Henry, she would say to Eli, Henry, I don't like it when you're gone for so long. I know, dear, I'd hear my brother reply. I'm here now, and it's okay. 
Will you stay with me? Yes, Margaret. I'll stay for always. And Eli would watch her drift off to a sound and quiet sleep. When Eli worked night shifts, it doubled her feelings of abandonment and consequently the length of her drunken pleas. It was on those nights that one of us would crouch behind the cracked door and report Mom's actions. The other, who was allowed to sleep, instead watched the driveway for Eli to return home. On these occasions when the two of us were alone, Worm would talk to me in our made-up language. I pressed my brother to speak to me in English, determined to break him of his introversion. I remember him opening his mouth, but the words just wouldn't come. It's okay, I would say. We'll try it again tomorrow. And the whispers in our private tongue would resume. The ritual continued through our early childhood and often late into the morning when either mom would collapse from fatigue or Eli's bus would sputter past the driveway toward the bus stop down the road. In either case, the brother who first heard one of these signals would finally and gratefully sigh, said Ark Mazir. I thought about what I wanted to say to Worm when the priest asked us to offer a few words. I thought about how little I could say to honor my brother's memory. Even as I write this memoir, I am suffocating in my own inadequacy. I spent my youth speaking for his heart, only to choke when I need to speak from mine. Dear brother, you were so gifted, so innately blessed with words. If I can't hold a candle to you, why should you pass me the torch? I looked at the pitifully small fascicle around me and wondered what parting sentiments they considered. They knew you as William, I thought. Gazing over their heads, I took in the expanse of murky obelisks and blanched headstones and estimated thousands of terse, forced elegies. I wondered if any of them brought comfort to the checkerboard of slumbering corpses around me. Wern's own headstone simply said, Here lies William H. Wood, comma, writer, 1980-2002. to 2002. Ever the prolific planner and hypochondriac, Worm had specifically requested this exact verbiage and forced his literary attorney to sign agreement of his execution in case of an untimely death. Even in death, Worm left behind a last sentiment of concision. He communicated minimally on the surface, as in his work and in his life, but left tomes of unspoken subtext beneath. His grave alone could constitute a 101-level course on pithiness. If headstones are your everlasting thought balloons, Worms bore the spirit of an author immortal. I know I shouldn't feel surprised or insulted that it made no mention of the brother he left behind. If I had my druthers, his gravestone would read simply, Worm, comma, twin. Or better yet, Worm, comma, food. I guess I should have been grateful for his brevity, as he kept it under a thousand dollars at twenty-five dollars per letter. Like most of his work, I felt outside the periphery of understanding and secretly wondered if he wrote, in part, for the gratification of making me feel stupid. I read introspectives on Worm's latest plays and marveled at the striations of subtext that the New Yorker and the Paris Review pulled from each seemingly simple line. They praised him for his wittiness, his originality, his injection of philosophical and religious apocrypha, his allusions and justifications, and the beauty of his prose and I'd sit there memorizing my roles or listening to a theatrical review and feel utterly embarrassed by my lack of understanding. In truth, I didn't need to understand it. If something was important, such as a pivotal soliloquy in Worm's script or Eli's reason for leaving us, well, I knew Worm would explain it to me. Yet the critics would glaze over my performance in favor of a dutiful and consistent lauding of the author with gems like 
he excellently portrayed his brother's soulful paragon of teenage angst. Or would the actor adequately personified would the playwright's heart-wrenching protagonist. Every compliment to Worm was a thinly-veiled insult to my craft. Every rave review of his work further exposed my ignorance of subtlety and emotion. Each exaltation slowly picked at a wound of shameful, putrid mediocrity. And while I'd like to believe it was the heartthrob of thespian perfection that drew in the crowds each night and skyrocketed Worm's writing career, I know, deep down, it was the other way around. But I digress. A fine mist settled around the cemetery, and I thought of the hundreds of bodies pulling up their covers and turning over, the long-since whispered elegies of their loved ones still and indefinitely rattling around in their hollow heads. How is my brother any different from the rest of them? Maybe I'd talk about Worm's successes as a writer, I thought, or how he accomplished something the hundreds of other souls hadn't. He figured out a way out of Pine Harbor and managed to travel the world. Maybe I'd sneer to our congregation that the, quote, retard from the playground had bested them all. But then I guess I'd have to mention that Worm would have hated having his body shipped back here to make Pine Harbor his final resting place. Pine Harbor. The name alone gains you two calories. Pine Harbor. Word had it, the military diverted flights ten miles away because the veteran airmen could feel their shrapnel embedded joints swelling. Our town mascot was moss. Our town coroner routinely inscribed cause of death as melancholia. Pine Harbor. Exactly twice I escaped this town, and exactly twice I was extradited to return. The irony is not lost on me that both times I left in search of my brother, I once returned to atone him, this second occasion to bury him. But there would be no more homecomings, I assure you, there would be no repatriation. Not only had I neither reason nor desire to ever see it again, but I couldn't bear the thought of internment to lay beside my brother once more in this tiresome, dreary womb. Pine Harbor, I'd rather die. A notoriously conservative town, run by a notoriously conservative mayor, Pine Harbor famously rejected both Harry Truman's and FDR's request for a whistle-stop tour at our Metro North train station. Known recently for the New York Times Magazine's article on Pine Harbor's most famous son, Worm, a five-year where-they-now follow-up to the article they'd written about us in high school, this murky, cynical, forgettable shithole would now cradle your body until nothing of you remains. I'm sorry about this, brother. Maybe I'd casually switch between English and what I remembered of our language, just to drive in the fact that we shared such a tight connection. Writers attending his funeral for New York would learn of Worm's close-knit family and strong relationship with his twin brother. To increase the impact, I tell Worm that I was proud of him, and I'd whisper in front of the sparse witnesses that he would forever be missed. I wondered if I'd shed a tear at that point, or become too choked up to finish saying goodbye. Would Leslie LaCrosse reach for my hand to steady my voice? Before New York's Broadway elite, would she seclude us in a solemn, shared moment of silence as Worm's closest, most cherished friends? Would she pull me into an embrace and helplessly cry into my chest? When the priest finally performed the sign of the cross and said, Amen, and I finished mentally taking Leslie from behind, a swell of guilt rushed over me. I flicked the cigarette to the liared earth and left without offering a single word, English or otherwise, to my brother's body. I knew that Worm would understand. 
but Eli most certainly would have been disappointed in me. To this day, I still regret not saying something, and I've added it to the top of a growing list of reasons why I'm writing this memoir. Contrary to what you must think of me, dear reader, I'm not entirely the insensitive prick I've described. I accept that you must believe Worm claimed all the positive personality traits, along with his penchant for the written word, leaving me with licentiousness and knavery. If I could go back to the funeral to prove you wrong and have another chance at saying goodbye, I tell Worm how much I loved him, and that I was proud of him, and how I really, really miss him. I realize I lost the years I should have spent with him. To make matters worse, in egomaniacal arrogance, I'd also lost the one chance I had to say goodbye. When they're gone, I promise, Worm, and it's just the two of us alone, I'll lay beside you on the grass and we can fall asleep together. One last time, just like old times. Zenark Mazir, my brother, it's safe to sleep.